podcast exploring a new era for the high street. We celebrate independent business and bricks and mortar retail across the UK, those who are shaking things up on their local high streets and who believe in the potential of our town and city centres. I'm your host, Alexandra. Welcome along. Hello and welcome back to the show. This will be the last in our present series. So to round off then, I'm delighted that we are in conversation with Valentine from Centre for Cities, a leading think tank dedicated to the prosperity of our UK's towns and cities. They conduct a huge amount of research on everything from things like the impact of urban transport on the successful local high street to net zero and how cities need to evolve to meet those targets, to policies like levelling up and scrutinising what they mean exactly. Centre for Cities have been leading research into our high streets for some time, of course, but recently they've turned to how the pandemic has impacted our local areas in different ways and how we're faring in our post-pandemic recovery. Today is a super interesting discussion about the eternal north-south divide, how the pandemic pulled the issue of inequality into sharp focus and why our next steps on how we approach those issues really matters for the high street and how we can build more inclusive spaces and reimagine cities for those that actually live there. Enjoy. So first of all, I guess, because we've been looking at a, in other series, we've been thinking about trends and retail trends and, and thinking more generally about how our cities and town centres are evolving. Um, and I guess some of that is quite obvious from us as shoppers and, and you know, feeling how our high streets are feeling. But some of it, I think that there's other tr- work, there's other forces at play that perhaps we're not always aware of. And I just think it'd be really, this is why I kind of thought it'd be great to bring you on because you huge amounts of research into this but before we kind of get into it all can you tell us a bit more about what Centre for Cities is as a, as a body and kind of what kind of research you, you look into? Sure so um, yeah it's a pleasure to be here thank you for, for having me. Um, so yes I'm a senior analyst at the Centre for Cities we're a think tank uh, and our core aim is to broadly speaking, help improve the academic performance of the largest cities and towns in the UK. Um, and that includes 63 cities in total we will look at uh, in our research. So we were established about 15 years ago with uh, the idea that essentially there is a lot of research existing on you know, architecture, urban planning, you know, everything that's kind of revolved around cities mm-hmm. tends to be you know, around sort of urban design. But there's maybe, or at the time, there was way less of an understanding of, of the role cities play for uh, the UK's economic performance as a whole, understanding cities as economic actors mm-hmm. as well. And here, you know, economic is taken in its broader sense and it's, you know, involves transport, housing, devolution. So we work on a, on a wide um, sort of range of, of issues, really. Um, and I work mostly on, on the role the high streets and city centres play in the economy. I see. Because generally, I mean, 
we all love cities and I think, and I think our relationship with cities have changed immeasurably in the past couple of years in terms of what cities can have brought to our lives. You know, these hubs of creativity and energy and people became very different places. And I think our thoughts about cities really changed. But for you and for, for Centre for Cities, why are they so important? Like, why are they important to the economy? What kind of, yeah, why, why is it that we're important that we look into what's happening there? So I think one way of summarizing this, and, and, and I say this quite often, is that cities, uh, if you look at them individually, they uh, account for about 10% of land in the UK, uh, mm. but more than half of jobs, and especially jobs that are the most productive. Wow. So if you look at um, you know cities in terms of an economic actor, uh, they really drive productivity growth um, in the UK. Um, and, you know, even though, like you said, in the past two years, we've all sort of questioned what the future role of cities is um, in the economy. You know, our questions are, you know, are people going to leave cities and what's going to be mm. the impact of this? Um, these are really important questions. Um, but what we know from, from the research is that, you know, when you look at uh, where the economy is going in terms of jobs and in terms of different areas of you know, specialty that the UK is focusing on. The UK is, is growing more and more in terms of, you know, uh, what we call knowledge-based uh, services, you know, away from jobs like manufacturing towards um, the knowledge uh, services sector. And when we think of the benefits that cities bring to the economy for these businesses to locate uh, in terms of, you know, sharing information, uh, being close to customers, being close to clients, cities play a huge role. And so mm. given the UK is increasingly concentrating its uh, sort of economic focus on these types of jobs and industries, then it's actually likely that cities will play an even uh, sort of bigger role in the future. I see. Oh, I'm optimistic about cities in, in the long term. I don't oh. think COVID has killed them. <laughs> oh, that's well, that's promising, actually. And, let, you know, before we come into that, actually, where where did we start from? So if we're thinking about kind of, I mean, not obviously, I mean, we, you know, I'm just thinking pre-pandemic. So I'm thinking if we're looking at what the pandemic has done for our cities, where, what's the baseline we're going from when we're thinking how, because obviously there's a huge amount of change already. So how do Centre for Cities, how are you measuring that impact? Are you sort of, yeah, tell us a bit more about where we were starting from and, and where we went to. Well, there's loads of different things to look at, but perhaps if we're talking about city centres and, and high streets uh, specifically, uh, you know, a clear indicator on the health of the high street is vacancy rate, for instance. Mm. Um, and, and so, like you said, understanding the, the impact COVID has had on city centres and high streets, um, you know, often requires understanding what was the situation before COVID. Mm. And I think it's it's quite common to read in the news that, you know, narratives of decline, that the high street is struggling in many places up and down the country. But actually, when you look at where we were in, you know, 2019, so just before COVID hit, um, there was a lot of variation as to, you know, the health of the high street in different places in the UK. Mm. So, and the vacancy rate is a really good indicator of this, so the number of shops that were, empty on the high street and it's a really good indicator um, because vacant units and high streets more generally do play a huge symbolic role in how people feel about their place yeah absolutely. Um, you know that's the reason why um, high streets were a core part of the the leveling up agenda and especially mm. in the pride in place what they call the pride in place mission partly because how people feel about you know their local area is extremely important and high streets uh, very often um, sort of represent um, this so in terms of how different places were doing before COVID, like I said, huge differences between places. So the, the most uh, interesting sort of 
picture was that there is a really clear north-south divide, as often when we look at a number of economic indicators. Mm. Um, you know, so in cities like London or Cambridge, which were quite successful before COVID, less than 10% of uh, units on the high streets were empty. Uh, okay. And if you look at cities up north, like Bradford or Blackpool, it was nearly a third. So huge differences in how wow. the streets were performing in, in the country. And what I think we sometimes miss in, in how we talk about the performance of the high street and the health of the high street is, you know, what explains these differences. Um, and actually, these uh, spatial disparities that had a huge spatial geographic angle to them mm. were explained in the first place by differences in economic performance. So in cities like London, for instance, is the fact that it's the presence of high-skilled, high-paid workers who would you know, commute to the city centre every day and then buy a sandwich at lunch or stay mm-hmm. eating drinks that would fuel demand for local businesses. And that didn't happen yeah. at the same scale in other cities in the north in particular. So mm. these kind of factors explain the differences we saw between places, but also, interestingly, the impact COVID has had. So interesting because I remember there was a um, presentation you did on the or your, one of your colleagues did in the city's outlook the report that you looked at um, and and I suppose that sort of well you could you could describe it much better than me but I, what I found really interesting was that the larger cities performed worse and I'm doing um, air quotes here worse than the kind of smaller towns because they actually almost had they had they had further to fall didn't they they had like because actually people weren't using the space in the same way I find that really interesting about like you say different places performing perhaps not in the way that you'd expect absolutely that was quite an interesting um, finding so we we looked at uh, both footfall and credit cards of spending data to understand um, how people use their city centres during lockdowns and after lockdowns. Wow. And the, you know, the broad picture so far um, since you know since March 2020 is that, like you said, it's the largest cities that have um, been hit harder by COVID, much more than smaller places. Um, so in a way, COVID has interestingly led to a sort of reversal of fortunes where it's those places that performed quite well before COVID partly because they had inflows of workers coming in, spending money in city centres, that were then the most um, affected by lockdowns. And there's, I think, uh, you know, a number of reasons for this. The first is that the larger city centres, like London, think of Manchester or Birmingham, attracted a much, um, well, had essentially a much wider catchment area. So they attracted people coming from much further away, whether it's you know, domestic tourists or international tourists. Mm. Um, and therefore, during lockdowns, when travel restrictions were in place, these places lost a much larger chunk of their usual customer base because people mm. are allowed to come in from, from outside, essentially. So that's one reason. The second reason is that many of these places, because they were successful before COVID, um, had already sort of developed their high street towards more uh, you know, food and drink, hospitality, the leisure mm. economy, uh, much more than, um, you know, essentials like groceries, for instance. Mm. Because food and drink and hospitality services had to close for much longer than, uh, you know, non-essentials, um, mm. well, essentially they they had to, uh, well, they suffered much more from from, from lockdowns. Mm. Um, so that's that's uh, another, another clear reason why that's the case. And the third, which I mentioned um, earlier, is that these places had a much higher share of, of office workers, who before mm. COVID would, you know, flow into the city centre and um, and spend money um, in, on the high street, and then with you know the massive shifts we've 
seen in terms of remote working or hybrid working, then many of these places are still um, missing customers. Well, I was thinking about this whole idea of returning to normal. And I mean, there, there's not really anything like that again. As we, we can't, there's no, there's no going back. There's no re- return to, uh, you know, things, things move on, things change. And I think that they affect both our communities and us as, as people. Um, but how, yeah, how, where are we at now? Cause I'm thinking, I think there's a sense like we should just be cracking on and just getting on with our lives. And actually, no, it's, uh, things are changing. People are still working from home because it's, it's convenient for a lot of people. Commuting was a, a pain. It's very expensive, particularly thinking about, you know, the south of England, particularly I'm thinking southeast, south. I mean, it's so expensive in around London. Um, so yeah, if we kind of think about, what normal what does that look like now where are we at now in terms of yeah think about all that research you've been doing yeah it's, what does it look like yeah it's difficult to know when you know to know what the real or the new normal is mm. um and it's difficult to know whether we've reached the new normal or whether we're still in sort of stabilizing um phase in terms of what the data says um is that a number of if we stay on the return to the office kind of question. A number of workers have returned to the office, uh, perhaps much more than we initially expected. So remember in the first few stages of you know, the first lockdown, you know, there was a lot of discussion around you know, the fact that remote working was you know, a revolution and that no one was going to go back to offices um, mm. anymore. It turns out, so you know, it is true that um, it's, it's brought a number of benefits for many people. And I think uh, it's quite unlikely that we go back to the full sort of five days a week in the office kind of pattern. Mm. Still, we've seen um, a number of people returning, uh, you know, two, three, four days a week. Um, and of course, that varies between places. So um, I would actually say that in terms of where we are now, it's increasingly looking like remote working is only a London uh, problem, if we were to call it a problem, which you know, it might not ah. be. That's, that's debatable. But um when you look at the at the data, it's mostly in London that people are you know haven't returned yet and are staying away from the office, probably because of what you mentioned earlier in terms of you know the pain of commuting, um, yeah. the cost of doing so, and the fact that it's uh, you know, much more comfortable to to work from home for those who have to commute long hours, and that's specifically you know uh, the case in in big cities like like London. So it is looking like. You know, a number of large cities are really struggling to attract their their workers back. Mm. But do you think that London can weather that storm better than anyone else because they've got other pools to the city, or are you seeing, or is it still a concern for for, for people like Centre for Cities thinking actually London's going to have to work harder, perhaps? Or uh, yeah, how, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think there's a few a few questions here. The first, but we don't have the answer to this yet, is what the impact of this uh, will be on productivity. And you know it's way too 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 soon to have a clear definitive answer on this, but it's definitely a question for the next few years. And then there's of course you know, there's a concern for the high street. You know when you look at the data in terms of, of spending patterns, uh, the sector that relied the most on office workers coming in was, like I said, food and drinks at so pubs, restaurants. Mm. Um, and when you look at sales um, in this sector specifically, up until the spring, um, you know sales still we're not back to their 2019 levels. So in the long term, this could have implications in terms of, you know, job losses or you know, a number of these uh, businesses could have to adapt to a permanently, you know, smaller number of customers. Now, whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, you know, 
I don't know, I think a number of these can also um, adapt towards, um, you know, changing their business model towards the weekend, for instance, or trying to mm. target different types of customers than just office workers. You know, if you think of, of Pret, for instance, which kind of um, yeah. represents this um, this office workers uh, sort of economy, um, it can sometimes be difficult to find Pret open for a coffee on the weekend, even though it's really busy. I was actually in central London a few weekends ago and impossible to find Pret open and it was really busy so i was thinking actually there's there's demand for, for like like people like me who are craving a coffee and can't can't find it so um i think i'm not i'm not too worried in the in the long term in terms of how these businesses will you know adapt towards um you know different business model but it's in the short term that this can be um, an issue for sure yeah it's almost like we need that same spirit of innovation and creativity that we had right at the beginning of the pandemic where people were like thinking on their feet and really experimenting and I think there needs to be that kind of spirit of experimentation again to think oh actually like this isn't working like before I was thinking about this with even things like Instagram Mm -hmm. where Instagram you, you see a lot in the small business community particularly you know Instagram when lockdown first hit became a real hub of community and conversation and everyone was on it because we all had this time and now we're like well, where's it all gone but of course we're all back to living well not lives totally as it were it was but I think we're all still remember we're forgetting how much we've all changed and like you say we need to kind of constantly it's exhausting but constantly thinking about how do we how do we change things up and how do we kind of continue to evolve yeah and actually um you know even though the narrative around high streets and the impact of covid is often uh, quite negative when you look at some of the data on how some businesses have survived um it looks like it's mostly you know independents have made their way through much more than big retailers and big chains so i think there's also changes in consumer preferences um Mm. and the fact that you know, my, my sort of view on this is that the UK and UK city centres before COVID were perhaps over-reliant on retail. And I think we're seeing a shift towards different types of users for city centres. And I think many of them will you know, be able to adapt because the fundamentals are, are still there. So it's going to be about adapting what the city centre looks like, you know, maybe less fashion shops and less uh, big department stores, but more, you know, pubs, restaurants, um, you know, cultural centres, um, and and there is appetite, you know, for people to return to the city centre. We've um, interestingly looked at the footfall data, comparing the return to the city centre on uh, weekdays and on the weekend. And what we see very clearly is that people are much more keen to go back to the pub than to their desks. Um, and so and so doesn't um, surprise me. You know, this, in a way, you know, weekend footfall is is basically back to where it was before COVID, and in some places, it's doing even better than before COVID. So. I think this is a positive sign that there is still appetite, uh, almost literally, for people to use their, their city <laughs> centre um, again. And partly because the offer in city centres, you know, there's no um, alternative elsewhere. And that's a very good reason to go to the city centre because of the diverse offer in terms of amenities. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean... I love that. More like, more happy to go to the pub than to their desk. Yes, I mean, always. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so when you're talking there about there was a really clear north-south divide, um, as there often is in lots of different aspects, um, but thinking about how we were pre-pandemic and how it was affecting during. And now that we're looking post, well, we're not... I mean, we're post to technically pandemic in terms of it being labelled as such, but we're feeling very much the effects. 
are how is that playing out now? Are we st- we're still seeing those trends continue? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so yeah, what we saw in the in the data is that um, so COVID led to sort of reversal of fortunes, where it's the places that entered the crisis in the strongest position, like London or Cambridge, that were the most affected. But I think it's also important to move away from this relative recovery perspective mm. um, to, you know, even essentially, even though the vacancy rate went up uh, more in London and Cambridge than in Burnley or Blackpool during COVID, in absolute terms, Blackpool and Burnley still have more vacant units um, mm. than London and Cambridge. So, you know, moving away from that, what the impact of COVID has been to actually the fact that uh, the situation in many of these places up north hasn't really changed for, for the better as well. They've maybe been more sheltered than mm. cities in the south from COVID, uh, but there's still a lot of, of, of work to do in terms of you know, how to um, help these city centres um, thrive. Um, and I think a lot of the time when we think about it in terms of policy response to this, um, what we see a lot, and, and you know, we've seen this in the in the levelling up white paper especially, is you know a list of like cosmetic interventions that help redesign the high streets and improve mm. its physical infrastructure, which is really important, but that's not really addressing the core problem, which is the lack of footfall. And behind mm-hmm. the lack of footfall is the lack of consumer spending power. Yeah. So um, investing in you know, skills and making city centres a more attractive place to do business, to attract businesses, and then attract high-value, high-paid jobs, which will then fuel demand for local services. That's the way to go um, in many of these places that are still struggling. Yeah. I, I mean, it's so interesting about the vacant units aspect because it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Because the more vacant units they are, the less likely there's going to be footfall because you don't want to spend time in a street that feels yes, depressing. Yeah, it feels unsafe. And- yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And it, it just seems, it's it feels like it's even harder to get yourself out of that as a city or a town to think, oh gosh, you know, it's, it's really difficult. In terms of the levelling up agenda and, and sort of, I mean, just giving what date we're on, we're on the 12th of <laughs> July, we're recording the 12th of July. Obviously today I think we're getting the leadership candidates um, for, and it's been a tumultuous time for government without getting into the politics of it. But I'm just thinking in terms of levelling up white paper, what's what has been happening since that launch? I mean, what what is and what are the hopes, what does Centre for Cities hope to kind of work with government to, to do or in the levelling up agenda? Yeah, the answer is not much or not enough. Uh, so, you know, my sense of this is that the white paper was, you know, overall quite positive in its uh, assessment of what the problem is. And there was a really clear uh, understanding of, you know, for instance, on the role that cities have to play in, in uh, you know, sort of uh, narrowing the gap in terms of productivity uh, with the rest of the country. Uh, so understanding that the geography of some of these issues um, has been has been you know, quite good in, in the way it was uh, it played out in the white paper. Uh, but in terms of actions so far, we haven't seen um, enough. Um, and in terms of you know, what, what needs to happen, and, and, and not really clear whether that's going to happen in the next um, two years, there's real big question marks around here. So I would say a good understanding of what the problem is, but we're still waiting to see delivery on many of these issues. One of them being devolution, you know, um, perhaps the most, this one was perhaps the most, um, I would say, um, sort of satisfying outcome of the white paper in its its, um, assessment of the need to devolve more power at the local level. um, Mm -hmm. We need to see um, that happen um, in, you know, in, Concretely, because mm. I mean, like you say, it's not as simple as I mean. Whilst um, 
adding some planters and kind of adding some, you know, making active frontage look, you know, great. And, and it's, it's much bigger than this. And I think we're definitely getting a sense of more whole scale um, changes needed, really bold kind of, I think innovative innovation, particularly in our cities, we're going to have to think quite differently. And it feels, it feels actually less than just a living up department. It's a whole collaborative approach, working with charity, working with NGOs, working with um, think tanks like yourself. It's a collaboration we're going to need, isn't it? In terms of kind of pulling ourselves out of what is a really difficult situation where there's so much going on, um, both on a personal and a community level right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the issue for now is that many of these different groups don't really talk to each other. Even if you think at the governmental level, you know, a lot of mm. these issues are cross-departmental, but still, we still work too much in silos, yeah. where the Department for Transport doesn't really interact as much as it could with the Department for Education or uh, for, you know, skills and all this, um, you know, we need collaboration across a number of, of uh, stakeholders to really get to where we need to go in terms of uh, leveling up, yeah. Yeah. And so where what's next then in terms of thinking because I think what's really tricky talking about at this point is that like I say I think at this point I think in our heads we're like oh you know we're getting on with it but I I've certainly had this feeling of of looking back over the past two years and our sense of time is all over the place as well I mean it's all it's been a very odd time and there's almost like a what what just happened feeling like that and it's like what what did we just live through like what and there's a time for us a reckoning we need to sort of take a collective breath and think wow where what we where, what's happened and to think that this drive constantly forward I, I think there needs to I don't know I just I don't know about you but I feel like this, there's a sense of actually taking stock that needs to happen and like you say, perhaps it's, it's too early to even to even know where we're going next because actually we need to stop and think about it a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's the problem is that it's a bit of a whirlwind, and when you think of you know back to the conversation around city centres and high streets, it, it it's like we're going from crisis to crisis. You know, as yes. soon as we emerged from the COVID uh, crisis, we jumped straight into the cost of living crisis, which is also uh, affecting. Uh, the high street because people are less willing to spend on non-essentials like you know, fashion or mm. restaurants and uh, you know, a lot of people are struggling with uh, basic needs and basic spending like like fuel or groceries um, so this is really affecting the high street so for a number of these retailers um, that struggled for two years um, getting their uh, customers back it's now another crisis another blow um, with the cost of living crisis hitting mm. and so for you then I mean, personally, or you can speak from Centre for Cities, what to you would you like to see happen in terms of a thriving high street? What would what would a really healthy local high street or perhaps a, a main street look like for you? And, and what would you like to see maybe be added that we don't have right now? Or what kind of, yeah, what, how would you like it to, to take shape? So I think I think the first thing is to be really clear, of, you know, on the nature of the problem um, and uh, therefore making city centres a better place to do business in the first place um, that will be key to you know helping the city centres and high streets grow in the long term and attract footfall attract customers to a number of high streets so that's one thing um, the other thing I say is I think the, I think the key words should be flexibility so uh, we need to recognise that city centres and high streets in the future don't have to look like what they look like two years ago Mm. Um, and so we need to really think about 
you know, balance in terms of commercial space? Do we need more, more or less office space? Do we need more residential? Do we need more retail, less retail? And having a strategic thinking around this um, and making sure that we're not stuck in the way we designed city centers in the past uh, will, be, will be essential. So, you know, office spaces will not look like what they did a few years ago. We'll need more collaborative spaces, um, you know, perhaps uh, less kind of, you know, wide, large, super large office space with no mm. space for collaboration. You know, we need to uh, provide a space where people feel comfortable um, commuting uh, to, and we need to make sure that the amenity offer around these places is attractive as well. So thinking in terms of, you know, flexibility, repurposing vacant units um, and making sure that city centres feel, you know, offer something you can't find elsewhere and you can't find mm. at home, especially in terms of online shopping, I think mm. is, is, is really important. Mm, yeah, it comes back to that thing we talk about so much on the podcast, but in terms of experiential cities, but and experiential retail, and just it has to, it, it, it can in terms of omnichannel retail as well, it offers something more. Like it's not to say that because that's a, I had a really interesting conversation earlier this week with a with a bookseller who was talking about actually the online isn't the enemy it's it's very much like part of the suite of options mm. now for retailers and and for consumers you know i think it's it keeps things interesting and and you go into store to but, it, but like you say it has to offer something else it has to offer that extra whether that's incredible customer service or um i don't know an ability to experience something an aspect of the product that you can't do online or i mean which which as of most products you can't experience very well online i'm also thinking about fabrics in terms of touching things and like how things feel and the color can never really feel the same way so i'm thinking about cities generally then is there anyone in the world like worldwide that you think that we could be looking to or in terms of like the UK could maybe be thinking about working collaboratively or twinning with in terms of thinking about a really fresh approach to planning and our high streets yeah that's a really good question I haven't really thought about the twinning uh, system but there's definitely a lot of cities around the world we should um, inspire, uh, well, get inspiration from in terms of how they uh, are planned and how they operate. Um, you know, I think we've all experienced in the past two years, and especially during lockdowns, what it's like to live in in a more literally a more livable cities where you know air quality is better, where there's less air pollution, less uh, noise pollution, uh, less cars on roads. You know, so getting. Um, you know, inspiration from a number of cities. I'm thinking, you know, Vienna or even Paris in the past few mm. years has made a really good um, sort of effort to get rid of cars in the city centres while making sure that anyone who still wants to access to the city centre can access the city centre. So, you know, there's a number of, of, of things we could sort of look at to make the cities more green in a way. And I think that's mm. going to be really important in the next, um, in the next few decades. Mm, it just makes it more enjoyable to to walk around, doesn't it? Feel safer. And there's some really great um, research on the pedestrian pound, isn't there? About thinking about you buy less, but you buy more frequently. As in, like you just make more. Sh- st- is that right? I, I've seen absolutely. some. Yeah, absolutely. There's, I think, often a concern, uh, even from uh, retailers, that they uh, they fear that if uh, we close roads to cars, that they're going to lose some of their uh, some of their customers. But actually. There is research on a pedestrian pound that shows that people who walk or cycle uh, are just more likely to spend uh, and, and just to hang around because it's just more uh, fun to be around um, a city where you know, there's no cars around. I don't know if you've noticed this, but every time I visit a new city and I'm thinking, oh, where's the nice bit? 
And when I think about this, I realize that by nice bit, I'm in the bit without cars. You know, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to find the place, you know, like a big square sort of Spanish yeah. Italian style kind of plaza with no cars. And that's what we think about when we think about the, the nice area. So yeah. I think that says a lot. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and it goes back to, I mean, essentially, they're market squares. I mean, essentially, they're, they're places to meet up, to gossip, to sell your wares, you know, to, to, to meet people, actually, you know, I'll, I'll meet you by this point at this under the clock or whatever. And, and that's, that's a purpose of our cities that has been there for, uh, I mean, centuries and centuries. So it, it's, yeah, it's really inherent to, it's, it's, it's a real part of our DNA, really, isn't it? As, as humans, that's what we need. Absolutely. There's a reason why cities settled in the first place is to allow for the exchange of goods and interaction between people. Um, and uh, you know, like you said, this has existed for for you know, centuries, and there's no reason why um, it should stop now. And I think you know another reason why we're seeing a lot of people return to the office or return to the high street on the weekend is because of the benefits that face to face interaction brings. Mm. Um, and you know that's still likely to be the case in the next few um, decades as well. Yeah. So we'll finish by saying because I mean you. you said you feel really hopeful and you're clearly an optimist about where cities are going and and but tell us so if, what would be your closing thoughts about kind of your hopes for where where our cities are going and and perhaps what you'd like to see from from leaders our leaders whoever they may be a, of any political persuasion but in terms of whether that be council leaders or mayors or thinking about the leadership in this country what would you like to see happen I think the first thing is that we need to make sure cities are more inclusive than uh, where they are now. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about inequalities between cities and between regions, but actually, when you look within cities, there are really stark inequalities in terms mm. of you know, life expectancy. I was reading this morning that um, it, this is a very London-centric example, but when you move on the Jubilee Line, you know, towards the different stops when you move east you lose a year of life expectancy every time oh you move east, which is, which is really incredible. And then that's really needs to be, uh, to be, to be tackled. Cause even though, you know, cities are great and, and London is, is a great city, um, we need to make sure it's, it's great for, for everyone. So I think that's, mm. that's the one thing. And the other thing is to really recognize the role that cities have to play in the green transition. Uh, mm. And essentially, you know, to keep it short city, We'll need more cities, not less cities, if we want to reach net zero. And that's because of the benefits that cities play um, in terms of uh, cutting carbon footprint. So, you know, a person who lives in a city in a year emits less carbon than someone living elsewhere for a number of reasons that have to do with density and availability of public transport, for instance. Ah. Um, so I think recognising the role that cities play in the net zero transition and that making cities greener um, in the future will be key to help the UK as a whole reach the net zero target. That's really essential. That's so interesting. I mean, I know what I was saying to close, but I just on that public transport, but that's because it's so interesting. Because do you, I mean, the centre for cities also, do you look at the, how, it, what impact the public, good access, access to public transport has on our, on how healthy a high street is and how that, because that's hugely linked, isn't it? That's Yeah, so essentially the reason why when you look at transport emissions, transport carbon emissions, uh, the reason why a person living in a city has a lower carbon footprint than someone living elsewhere is because density essentially means that journeys are shorter, so they can more easily be walked or cycle and demand or require less energy. And also because density makes public transport more viable. So it's much mm. more easy for 
uh, a bus operator to run a route in a city uh, or in a dense area where there's demand for it rather than in a rural area. So that explains why uh, a number of cities in places like London, Manchester, Birmingham commute uh, using public transport um, rather than, than car. Um, and in terms of, you know, the, the, the sort of wider benefits of public transport, you know, it's really key because public transport is also hugely important for productivity. So, you know, being stuck in traffic for two hours does mm. affect productivity. So transport connects people to jobs and businesses to, to potential workers. Um, and so making sure that as many people as possible can reach a given city centre um, using public transport has environmental and economic benefits. So that's a really big one for uh, policymakers to, um, mm. to sort of take action on. Mm, absolutely. And again, it's part of that kind of multimodal um, journey. I mean, in terms of walking and cycling, it's easier if you have also like a public transport system that supports that um, and, and enables a city to feel a bit more car free because actually there are other options that are viable, like you say, that are regular, that are reliable, that are also um, cheap or, 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 you know, reasonable, which I mean, I won't. Let's not get started on the price of train fares in this country. But <laughs> and the, the how how oh, bizarrely structured they are price wise. But yeah, it's like we need again. We need just to think much more holistically, actually, about how all these things interplay and who they affect. And I love your your um, emphasis on inclusivity because I think both in terms of kind of socioeconomic status, but also in terms of how our cities look and feel in terms of accessibility for older people or, you know, ethnic minorities or, like, or people who are disabled. Or I think it's about thinking, actually, this isn't working. The, the, the cities, I think, have been designed by a very small group of people for a very small group of people, <laughs> you know, for a long time. So I yeah, really love absolutely, that. Absolutely. Actually, that these two kind of themes, like touched upon the inclusivity and the transport, the green mm. economy, they're really interconnected. So mm. I think it's important to sort of keep in mind that when we talk about, you know, uh, encouraging public transport usage, this is not a war on cars. And it's really mm. uh, essential that those who you know, have no other option but using a car because they live further away or because yeah. they can't use public transport, um, have the option, you know, of getting into the city centre um, as much as, as they want. It's about making it inclusive for everyone. But there's, you know, there's plenty of options to ensure, like you said, multi-model sort of experiences where, you know, you drive from wherever you live to the outskirts and then you finish the last mile using public transport or any other form of transport. Um, so thinking about this, like you said, holistically, is, is really crucial, yes. Mm. Well, I, I I love that. I love that idea of thinking of our cities and, and thinking really optimistically and hopefully about the future of them because, I mean, they're they're wonderful places and it keeps things really... And I love the kind of diversity, particularly in the UK, of how different our cities feel. You know, and there's a lot of said about the kind of homogenisation of the high street. And in some ways... I mean, in some ways, the pandemic actually was a bit of a reckoning in terms of, like, stripping out a lot of the... I don't know. I want... I, it's going to be a difficult time, but I think there's a lot of opportunity here for some really dynamic, like independent businesses or co-creating spaces or artists or community pubs or whatever to move into these places. But we're going to go through a huge period of change, but I am excited. And I just think, um, yeah, it's always a really interesting ex exploration around Britain's uh, 
yeah, I was just thinking I was in Cardiff the other week and I was in Birmingham and I was in Bristol and they all have such different feelings to them. You know, and I think that's what keeps things really interesting. So, um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and I'm fascinating to read about your your research. And if people are, are, are more kind of interested in it, can they attend events that you run and read more about what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can have a look at our website, uh, centerforcities.org, uh, and you can uh, register to be on mailing list and you'll have all the updates on you know, the latest publications, blogs, data available, and also events. Um, so yeah, be sure uh, to keep in touch as well with me if, you're, um, if, you, if you'd like to. Uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to uh, you know, help anyone who's interested in, in cities. I love that. Yeah, because I think it's a really good resource, isn't it? If people were actually really interested in rejuvenating their area or thinking about who do I speak to or who do I get in touch with, there's lots of research and lots of kind of, a yeah, you've got you've got a lot of data at your fingertips. I'm not just, I mean, you personally, I'm sure, but I mean, generally, in terms of Centre for Cities, you've got a lot that people could look to. Yeah, and a lot of the time, you know, the, the people, especially those who work in local councils, they know broadly, you know, they, they have the core data on their area. But what we're bringing to the table is how they compare to other places. And that's always a useful uh, resource. Love that. Well, a pleasure. And we look forward to seeing, yeah, what, what the next steps are and how what the next steps are in our recovery, I think, as a country and thinking about and our system more in general. So thank you again. Thank you. And that's it. Just like that, that's the end of Series 5. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, which is keeping me very busy at the moment. So I'm going to take a short pause, but I'll be back in the autumn as we delve into the cost of living crisis and energy crisis and how it's impacting retailers, independent business and us as consumers and that pound in our pockets. Oh, there's an awful lot going on right now, isn't there? Goodness me. If you've got ideas for the show, I would like to get in touch then. As always, you can get me on Instagram at Independent Thinking Podcast or Independent Thinking Podcast at gmail.com. Until then, thank you again for listening and have a wonderful end of summer. Bye for now.